Amen. Well, I'm not pastor. I think that's pretty obvious. You can see that. But I'm still glad to be here with you tonight. Glad for the opportunity to get to speak to my family, to my home church. This is always a special honor and a special uh, privilege. So thankful for that. And hopefully you'll put up with me for a few minutes anyway. You just, you know, go ahead and deal with me. <laughs> anyway, I, I want to speak to you tonight kind of... I've, I've known what I was going to talk about for a couple of weeks now since me and Pastor have talked about it. I, I don't want to over-spiritualize it and get, you know, trying to work something up that ain't there. But uh, I've known what I was going to talk about, and then Pastor got to talking saying he was going to do a series on passion. So I, I guess maybe I'm just piggybacking off what he's done already. But I had the idea first, so no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I, I want to talk to you tonight somewhat on the same topic of passion, but, but not in the same manner. I, I want to talk about a different set of passion. I want to talk about a passion for the presence of the Lord. A passion for His presence. And more specifically, not just what it is to have passion for His presence, but I want to talk to us about treating God commonly. And, and I'm, I, before I get started, let me, I ain't going to sit here and scold you all night. I'm not going to bash anybody over the head. That ain't my job. But I just want to talk to you. I want to take a few uh, examples from Scripture and look at some different stuff that I think follows some trends maybe that we see in our lives sometimes. And uh, examine a few things there. And I, I'm normally more one of those expositional preachers or whatever you call that. That's a big word that means I like to preach from one spot and not jump all over the place. But tonight I'm going to jump a little bit, so just hang with me. Just, just bear with me if that'll be all right. We're going to start in the book of Luke chapter 4. And uh, before I read all the Scripture to you, because I don't want to... I don't want to read three chapters worth tonight, so I may give you just a little background, and then we'll read a few verses, if that's okay. Unless y'all just want to do a lot of reading. Anyway, we're going to talk to you from the book of Luke, chapter 4, starting off. And this story that's here uh, will be in the latter part of the chapter. You can see that Jesus has come back into his hometown. He's just come off of his 40-day fast in the wilderness He's come back and he's gone to the place of Nazareth where he was born and raised. Well, not born, but raised. Uh, it's the place where they decided to settle after the threat of Jesus' life as a baby was over. So he's come back to this place called Nazareth where he's grown up. And he walks in and, and he, is, he finds himself in the temple and in the synagogue teaching some of the leaders and the priests and the people of his town of that day. And he's right there in his hometown. He's speaking and, and just a little history on Nazareth just to kind of give you an idea uh, if you're looking at a map, Nazareth, you've got the Sea of Galilee right over here, and you've got the Mediterranean Sea here. And, and Nazareth falls sort of in the middle of that and to the south just a bit. And it's an interesting city because it's not really known for anything. You can't even find one time that it's mentioned in the Old Testament. It, it's not really a well-known place. There's not a lot of history about it. You can find a little, but there's not a lot. It, it's not really a special place. But some of the things that you can find about Nazareth is, is that it's a small town. It's an agricultural town. Like I said, it sits a little south and in between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. It, it was assumed to be somewhat of a, a hotbed or a hub for religious leaders of that day who didn't actually live in Jerusalem. It, it was kind of a gathering place for those prominent men of the Jewish sect. And, and that is where they would meet. That's where they'd gather. And the reason, it's just kind of interesting. It's kind of... Uh, geographically, it's set up sort of like we would think of New Orleans. It's kind of like a bowl. They say it's just a basin out there in the middle of the desert. And you can't see anything other than Nazareth from Nazareth. 
You can't see outside of it. You can't see anybody coming. If an army were to come on the place, they wouldn't know the army was there until it was coming down the side of the hill to come in after them. But anyway, uh, that's just a little fact about it. So you see that Jesus is in this place of Nazareth, and he's beginning to teach to his, uh, his home people, his, his hometown, and all these folks are gathered around. They want to hear what he says. And he starts in verse 18 of Luke chapter 4, and he says these words. Actually, let's start at verse 17, if that's not too much trouble. Let's back up just one verse. We'll kind of look at some stuff there. I'll try not to be this boring the whole night. I look, think about three of y'all done nodded off, but it's all right. I'll send Brother Roger over there to thump you if you get snoring. <laughs> Verse 17 says this. He was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had found the place, or when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering a sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book and gave it back to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. There's a couple reasons that they were fastened on him. Number one, like I said, he was just common. He was normal, and he gets up there, and he begins to teach them, and he begins to talk in this city of Nazareth. And, and as he is talking to them, breaks a little bit of their tradition, and, and he breaks out of what would be common to them, because it literally says right there in verse 17 that they handed him the scroll, and it says he opened up the book, and he found the place where it was written. And I, I don't know how much you know about Jewish church, but you don't do that. Not back then. What would happen is normally someone would take that scroll and hand it to you. You would open it up and you would read the passage of scripture that was given to you. You would put a marker in the scroll, roll it back and hand it back to the minister and you would expound on the scripture that you had just read. And then the next week, another guy came in and took the scroll, opened it up and he read the scripture right after where you left your mark. And he began to read that scripture, read it, put a mark, rolled it up, handed it to the minister, and then he expanded on that spot, and so on and so forth. So there was not a place for people who wanted to come in and find their spot. You weren't allowed to do that. So Jesus is breaking a tradition here. He's kind of shaking things up. He's getting people a little irritated at him right off the bat because you're not supposed to do that. And keep in mind that, like I said, according to some historians such as uh, Zondervan or Josephus or different men of that, they would say that this is something, it's a place where all of these Jewish leaders and religious people of prominence were gathered. So they would be really irritated if some kid come up and broke tradition, I would think. And Jesus comes into the midst and he opens up the book, he finds the place and he begins to read to them this scripture where Isaiah declares that the spirit of the Lord is upon me. It's a messianic prophecy, everybody knows that, they're aware of it. Jesus reads it and then he says, today it's fulfilled in your ears. Now that ticks some folk off bad. Because like I said, he's in his hometown. So when he begins to declare, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one that has come down from heaven, the man that has been sent by God for you to deliver you from your mess, that really hits some people wrong. Because they, they begin to look at him and they say, now wait a second, I, I know who that, that's Mary and Joseph's boy. Now I was down there last week, he built me a real good table and chair set, but, and he's a good carpenter, but a Messiah, I don't think so. He's real good at woodwork, but salvation, probably not. 
And they, they got hung up on the fact that Jesus could not possibly be who he said he was according to this scripture because they'd known him all this time. They understood him. They knew who he was. They knew all about him. And they could not grasp the fact that Mary and Joseph's son could be anything special. So as he begins to declare how great he is and how wonderful he is according to the scripture that's been written about him, they get a little irritated. They get a little agitated. And you can actually find, if you go down through here, it begins to talk about how he starts telling them all this stuff and they start getting irritated with him. And they begin to get really mad. And then you can jump on down to verse 28. And it says this, that all of them who were in the synagogue, when they heard what Jesus said, they were filled with wrath. They rose up and they threw him out of the city. They led him out to the brow of the hill whereon their city was built that they might cast him down head first. But he was passing through them, or he passed through them, and he went on his way. That's a pretty cool trick if people want to kill you and chunk you over a cliff and you move right on through them and they never see you. Houdini didn't have nothing on that. So Jesus has got a vanishing act going on here, and he moves right through the midst of the people. And, and why are we talking about with this? What's your, what's your point? We're going somewhere, I promise. I told you, we're going to talk about treating God commonly tonight. And, and this, is what it, this is what I would see from this, is that you read where he has come to his hometown. He's ministering. He's trying to do the work God has sent him to do. And as he's doing this, his hometown can't get over the fact that he's just one of the common folk. He's just one of the good old boys. He's just normal. So because they cannot understand the fact that Jesus is not common, they continue to treat him commonly. And as they treat him commonly, he takes them, or they take him out to the edge of the hill, and they're going to throw him off head first. And as they're going to do this, all of a sudden Jesus moves right through the middle of them, and they don't even know it. <clears throat> this is why this verse is scary. I believe what we could draw from it is to say that when we move into a place where the presence of God, Jesus was in the city with them, his presence was there. And when we get to a place where the presence of God becomes something that we view commonly, he can move right through the midst of us and we'll never even know it. He can move right by us. We see him on the person three rows over and they're shouting and hollering and squalling and we ain't feeling nothing. We're, going, we're just being real. Is that okay? All right, you said it's okay. I got your permission. No. We treat sometimes, and hear me, I don't come to be some, some pompous, yelling at you, scolding you punk kid wanting to tell you what you're doing wrong with your life. Now, I, I want to talk to you out of love tonight because before I can give it to, it, it had to hit me, it hit me square in the eyes a few weeks ago that the Lord started speaking this into me and I, it started bothering me. Started messing with me, trying to figure out, what, what was that? Lord, where am I missing that at? What are you talking about? I'm treating you common. What are you talking about? I, I'm, I'm not giving you enough attention I, that I'm letting you be just a normal or a common thing. And we've got to understand that if, if we treat him commonly, he'll move through the midst of us and we won't see him coming. We won't see it happening. We won't feel anything. We won't know what's going on. We just know that everybody else is feeling something and there's nothing happening to us. And this is what I, I would point out to us tonight is, if you study a little bit on the city of Nazareth, like I said, you can't find much, but you can find bits and pieces from different guys, historians of the time and all that. 
what you'll find is Nazareth is not known for anything all that bad. They're not known for anything all that good either. But they're really not known for anything all that bad. It's just, it's just a normal place. The sin of Nazareth was not that they were drunkards. The sin of Nazareth was not that they were adulterers or fornicators or that they were greedy or, or that they didn't take care of widows and orphans. The sin of Nazareth is that they treated the presence of God commonly. And you can read it out and find that Jesus did not go back there. He didn't do anything else there after this point. They had treated him commonly and he understood that if they will treat me commonly, there's nothing I can do for them. If, if they treat me like I'm just normal, I can't do anything. Now, the reason we would talk about this is because I don't believe that we do that necessarily. But what my fear would be is that in moments like this morning where, where we're just in worship and all of a sudden the Spirit of the Lord just moves in. Or when we're in moments like tonight when just all of a sudden you can, you can just tell that the glory of God is in the house. That it would become something that happens to us enough that it's just common. And we almost treat it like we get to pick and choose when we want to get in and when we don't. That I don't have to give it all I got this week because it's been a stressful week and it's been rough and hell on earth is breaking loose with my kids or with my family or this or that. So I'll just catch it next week. And we begin to act as if that is the manner that we can function in. But, but here's the thing is, God didn't set us up on a spigot theology. The presence of God is not something that when I get thirsty, I can walk to it, turn it on, get what I need, turn it off and walk away. Every time that His presence is talked about, every time that, that the sustaining flow of the Christian life is mentioned, it's always referred to as one type of body of water. Two, actually. Well, we can go with two. It's either a well or a river. You can't turn wells off and you can't stop rivers. A well, there's water, it's just going to be there. You can't stop having, the choice is, will I drink from the well? <clears throat> the choice is, will I use the river that's there? There's no choice to turn it off and on. And, and, and the problem that I think we get sometimes in, in the church as a whole is we begin to view His presence as something we can just get here and there when we want it. And we'll, we'll just, I, I didn't feel like doing anything this week, or you know that song that, that they sang, it just didn't, really, just didn't really get me, but maybe they'll do my song next week and then I'll worship. And, and we sit there in our pew and we're in anticipation that Michelle's going to go into the song that we like. Or that the praise band is going to go ahead and they're going to sing one more chorus through of this one or that one. And it's just really going to bless us. But then the next week, if it's not exactly what we wanted, then it's just kind of iffy for us. We're, we're not really sure if we can engage. And I'm talking from me. I, I, I'm not just scolding somebody. We get into these places where, where we think that even sometimes we don't really feel like it's what we're doing. But if we take a closer look. I think sometimes we can fall into this trap of treating him like he's a common thing. Treating him like he's ju just, it's just okay. He's just, he's good. I love him. I'm saved. I, I'm trusting in God. But there's something about it that it just becomes common that, that I don't wake up and he, he's not the first thought I have. My, my sole purpose every morning is not 
to see if I can seek him before I ever leave my house to make sure how he wants my day to go or what he wants me to do. And life gets busy, and it's hard to live that way. It's a sacrifice to do it, but I believe it's the call of the Christian life. It is to treat him as more of a priority than anything else in this world. Life is hard, stuff gets busy, things get hectic with job and with, with children. I'm sure I can't tell you, but I got three siblings, so I'm pretty sure if my parents had to deal with it. I ain't got none of my own, but I watched it. I know it gets stressful. <clears throat> and with all of those things going on, sometimes the trap of the enemy is to get us going through this rut. And we don't fall into some great sin. We're, not, we're good people doing good things, living good lives, doing a good work, blessing a good church, leading good families and all this stuff. And we're just doing good things, but God just kind of becomes common. He's just one of the other things that we have to check off of our list every week. And I, I don't want to... I don't want to be one of those people I said that just stands here and scolds you or, or you think that. So let, let me go with it this way. I think it's time that we back up and examine ourselves and say, God, is there something in me that treats you common without even meaning to? Is there something in me that, that I am so caught up with other things that I still love you, I still seek you, I may even do my Bible reading every morning, but, but there's something in me that I've kind of gotten to a place where I treat you commonly. And, and if there's something in me where I treat him that way, it has to die. Because I can't live with the city like Nazareth. I can't live in that sin that they had and, and do something that causes him to never come back. I can't treat him in such a way that, that, that I call that place his home. They still refer to Nazareth as the home of Jesus. You know that, right? I can't allow my life to become one of those places where I say that this is his home, but he won't come back there. And that happens when I treat him common. <clears throat> that happens if, if I treat him like he's good and he's great, but he's just, just part of my life. He's not, not the leading thing, not the driving thing. And I told you we're going to bounce, so let, let's get ready to bounce real quick over to something else, into another aspect of this. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, I think we get a good example of this. 2 Samuel 6. <clears throat> It's a story everybody knows. We all talk about it. We highlight it. We, we look at it. It's been ripped apart by Pentecostal preachers. So it ain't going to be nothing new that you ain't heard. But we can look at what David did right here and notice something. He, he is going to retrieve the ark of God in this moment. He has decided that he is tired of the presence of God, the ark of God not being in his city. So he sets out on a mission, and he's going to go and retrieve the ark, and he is going to bring it back to his city. He wants the presence of God there. That's what he's telling everybody he wants. That's what he says he's going to do. He sets out on this great quest to do it. 
And this is what happens in chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. It says, Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. <clears> and David arose, and he went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, that dwell between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart, and they brought it unto the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. <clears throat> And Uzzah and Ahio, however you want to say these guys' names is fine with me, the sons of Abinadab, they drove the new cart. They brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark, and David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments, made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries, and on timbrels and on cornets and on the cymbals. David's going to get the presence of God. He's, it's his mission. He sets out to do it. And, and as he sets out to bring the presence of God back, it, it says that he takes with him 30,000 of the best men of Israel. And with these 30,000 men, he's got a brand new, shiny, fancy, decorated, best that there is cart. Knowing David, this thing was probably overlaid with gold, had all kind of precious jewels on it and whatever else. That's just how he was. He went top of the line with stuff. And then on top of that, it's not enough that he has 30,000 men with him. He's got a brand new cart that is decked out like nothing you've ever seen. On top of that, he's got all manner of instruments praying, playing praise and worship to the Lord. This dude has put together a parade and a half to bring back the presence of God. He has organized it to a T. He has got it lined out. He has got the math all figured out of what needs to happen. And he has set it up with all these men, all these instruments, this brand new cart, and he has decided he's going to bring God's presence in. But there's a problem. God's method didn't involve 30,000 men. It didn't involve a new cart. And it didn't involve all manner of instrument. Nothing wrong with those things. But that was not the method of God to bring his presence. The, the method that God had set up was for his men, choice men, his priests, to take the ark on those cedar poles overlaid with gold, lay it on their shoulder, and begin to walk. And every set amount of steps, they would stop and they would kill an animal because the presence of the Lord was not to go over territory where something had not been sacrificed. So that was the process that God had envisioned. But the thing about that is, is that takes a lot of time. That takes a lot of work. That takes a lot of resources. It's not an easy job to get somebody to commit to hold a box that might have well weighed a couple hundred pounds on their shoulders and march it for a hundred miles or so. That, that's not something anybody's going to volunteer for just right offhand. And then on top of that, while you're marching this box back, you're supposed to have people with you praising and worshiping and blessing the Lord, and you're supposed to be killing all these animals and offering the blood so that it's okay for you to keep moving the ark. There's a lot of trouble involved with this method. And David doesn't exactly have time to go along with the method that God had laid out, so he decides that he will do it his way. He's got a better plan here. He knows what God wants, but he's going to go ahead and do it in the way that makes the most sense for him. So he's got this method set up, and he's going to do this. He's going to bring the presence of God back. Here's the problem. You can look throughout Scripture and history and all sorts of different places, and what you're going to find is this is the exact same ritual that would have been used for any other king or special occasion. 
You'd have brought out a parade of your finest. You'd have played the instruments in front of them. You'd have ridden them in on a brand new chariot or a cart or a wagon of some kind. And God was not going to allow it to happen that his presence would come back to a place in the same common manner that every other king came into the place. That's the sin of this. Why did Uzzah die? Uzzah died because God was already mad about the way they did it. And then when God went ahead and shook the cart and was going to knock it off the cart so they didn't succeed, Uzzah tried to stop it and keep them going in the same method that they were, and God killed him. Because God was not willing to do something in the exact same manner that every, every other king was being honored and everybody else was being worshipped. He wasn't going to allow it to go that way. But it, it seems as if from Scripture, David thought that if he sang loud enough and he played hard enough and he had enough people walking with him, that it would just be okay and God would forget about it, that he had another process. It, it, it was almost as if he thought that he could flirt hard enough with God that it'd be okay. <clears throat> he knew he wasn't doing what was required by God, but he was still doing a good thing. He was, he was giving praise. He was doing all this stuff. He, he was blowing a lot of smoke. But he was not following the method that God had ordained. And, and it seemed, like I said, almost as if to flirt with God, he, he begins to do this. And he thought that saying enough of the right thing and playing enough of the right thing and doing all this stuff that was the right thing for God would somehow appease him and let it go on. But God desires something real. He desires something intimate. And there is a vast difference between flirtation and intimacy. God doesn't desire somebody to flirt with him. He longs for people that will be intimate with him. Flirtation and intimacy will never be the same thing. It is one thing to tell somebody how good they look. It is another thing to propose to them and ask them to spend the rest of their life with you. It, it is one thing to, to try to give a compliment. It's another thing to exchange vows. Flirtation gives a compliment. Flirtation says the right thing. Flirtation makes somebody feel good. But intimacy says, I'm going to join with you. And, and, and I'm going to be a part of you and whatever you're doing. And we're going to be linked together. That's the difference there. God doesn't need anybody to flirt with him. He, he doesn't need somebody to tell him how good he is. He doesn't need somebody to just sit there and, and just, just give him a little praise every once in a while. He doesn't desire flirtation. He desires intimacy. He desires a real thing. He desires a people that want him more than they want anything else. That has always been the desire of God. That's why he created man. That's what we're here for. He's not looking for a flirt. You Think about that. I know I'm talking. I'm probably getting boring. So if I am, somebody just you know nod your head or something. I'll try to pep it up a little bit or something. But You think about how we would view a flirt. From a male's perspective, woman comes up flirting. Yeah, he feels good for a minute or two. But if she keeps on flirting, never really does anything, but she just flirts every now and then, he's going to say, okay, she wants something. She must want something because she keeps saying nice things to me. We're not in a relationship. We don't have anything, but she must want something. Or from a female perspective, you just bear with me on the term here. A woman going to look at him and say, that's a pervert. He doesn't know what I want. 
He doesn't understand my interest or my needs. I don't even know how to talk like you women, but you just, you fill in the blanks. He doesn't know what I'm really searching for, what my heart longs for. It's, you know, he just, he doesn't get it. Now, if we are created in the image of God, does it not stand to reason that he would think somewhat of the same way about a flirt? A, a, a person that would only come in and just say nice things to him once in a while or somebody who would just begin to kind of blow smoke at him now and then, w would it not stand to the reason that he would, he would think, well, they must want something again? <clears throat> or they don't understand what I want at all. They're just, they're just saying stuff, but they, they don't even understand what I'm really desiring here. They don't even get what I want. L let me give you an example here. And I, Brother Scott, I didn't give you the scripture on this. We'll just know it by memory. You'll know what the triumphal entry is, right? When Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, you, you know the story. Jesus gets ready to ride in, and they go fetch a colt for him. They bring him the colt, and, and he's riding in on this donkey. They've laid their garment across the animal, and, and he's riding in on the colt. And as he does, something strange starts to happen. They begin to lay down these palm branches, right? Why is it that that's the only part of that we ever talk about? Because if you read the story in context, I, I'm not going to take time to give you the whole thing, but go look at it. It's Mark chapter 11, 12, something like that. It literally says in context that Jesus was riding in and people began to lay their garments in the road before him so that he could ride across and then some begin to cut off palm branches and straw them in the way. The real fanatics, I believe, were the ones who were taking off garments and throwing them out for Jesus. The people who really loved him, who were really intimate about him, who, who wanted to know him and walk with him and follow him even unto death, were the ones who were ripping off garments and throwing them out in front of him. Not the ones who wanted to look as if they wanted to follow by cutting off a palm branch and throwing it down. Because you've got to understand something here. But they didn't live like we live. I probably got five, six, seven change of clothes that still fit in my closet. Don't laugh. You ain't got three or four. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We got multiple changes of clothes. I could throw something down and a donkey steps on it, cuts it up with that shoe that they put on him or whatever else. It's fine. I got more stuff. But in this culture, you had one garment. And most people, if they were lucky, had somewhat of a dress up, uh, like a, a shawl or a robe or, or a sash to go over that and kind of dress it up and make it like their church clothes. But you had one robe. And that was what you lived in. You, that was your robe. That was all you had. And the robe of a person in a Jewish culture could tell you a lot about them. If they were one of those that had enough money to have two or three, some of the real well-to-do ones, they would buy garments of different colors. And, and they would adjust their colors. Or even if they had just one garment, they would wear different pieces of fabric with it. And you would know what kind of a mood they were in based on the clothes they wore. If they were mourning... Kind of like, you know, how we put on all black. They'd put on whatever, black, I guess. or what, They would put on different colors to let you know how they felt that day. And they would take their garments, and, and, and as they lived a little longer, maybe they gained a little more, they would add to that robe. They might add jewels or beads or, or decoration or whatever to that garment that they had. So for someone to take the thing that they have invested in for many years and throw it down for a donkey to ride over just because Jesus was on the donkey says a lot more to me 
than the person who grabbed the branch and threw it in the way. You've also got to understand that for a Jewish person, the way they dressed, they had something, we, we would look at them and say they had long johns or something of that sort, you know, just, just an undergarment. They had an inner garment and an outer garment. And the outer garment would have been that robe that they would dress up. So if they were to take off their outer garment and shed that robe out there, they were in complete, they were, they were vulnerable, they were exposed. They were not wearing the nicest stuff anymore. They were wearing the rags at this point. They didn't look well to do. They wasn't anything special about them anymore. They had thrown the special thing about the way they looked on the ground and let a donkey ride across it. But then the people who wanted to just kind of flirt with Jesus and just do something nice for him walk over to a tree and they begin to chop off the branch and throw it down there for him to ride over. He's not looking for flirts. He's looking for people who will lay it all down. He's looking for people who, who are so concerned with having a real relationship with him that they will let him walk across any part of their life. Anything special they've got can be under his feet, under his dominion, under his rule. Anything uh, uh, special about them, even you think about this, if their garment reflected their mood, they even threw down the way they felt and let his authority ride over how they really felt. Because we always hear that my emotion and my feet, well, I just can't hide how I feel. You better get that under the blood. Can't hide my emotions. I just, I, I can't let somebody do me that way and then just still, I don't know how you do that. I can't let them be that way and then still treat them nice. That was my Kermit the Frog for all you Facebookers. We've got to get to a point where we live in such intimacy with him, such a real relationship with him, that everything about us can be thrown down and he can have rule over it. He can walk across the top of it. It is his. Nothing is mine anymore when I give him all that I've got. I lay it down and I may, be, I may look vulnerable, I may look exposed, I may look weak, and I may not look mighty and powerful and rich anymore, but I will give him all that I have because that's what the Christian life is. I'm not saying you've got to give away all of your money. I'm saying that God has control of it. I'm not saying that you've got to give all of your time and you can't raise your kids and have family days. I'm saying God better have control of your time. Because that's what a real relationship with him does. It takes everything I've got and it throws it at his feet for him to have control, for him to have dominion over. And it leaves me exposed. It leaves me vulnerable. It leaves me to where he has to be my strength. He has to be my source because I'm at his mercy. And we have, we've got people nowadays that are afraid of that kind of living. We've got, we've got a generation of folks, the, the young and the old. It's not limited to one age bracket. That are afraid to live in that manner because it makes us look weak. It makes me look too vulnerable. I, I can't lay down everything I've got for him because that, that just makes me look weak. And I, I believe that the lie that the enemy ha has instilled in so many people is this lie that you can't look vulnerable. You've got you to gotta stay strong. You've got you to gotta keep the good front on. 
I'm not telling you you need to walk around popping Prozac all the time and crying on everybody's shoulder. That ain't what I mean. What I'm saying is we have gotten to a place in the church where we are almost afraid to be real and sincere and tender with God or with our brothers and sisters because we're afraid we're not going to be tough enough. You may not think I'm the manliest man that's ever been. That's just fine. I, I'm not worried about that. Not defined by anybody thinking anything about me. M my affirmation comes from what he thinks about me. And I can't be hung up on making sure that the manly man thinks I'm as manly as he is. Or, or the, the smart man thinks I'm as smart as he is. Or the rich man thinks I'm as rich as he is. I've got to be focused on keeping my relationship right with the Lord and not worry about how vulnerable I may look to my brothers and sisters. That is not my, uh, that's, that's not what I've been given to do. My objective is to not look, not to look as good as you or, or as great as you. It's to love him with all that I have. It's to give him every part of me, not on Sunday, but every day. And to surrender all that I have. But, but the enemy has come in with a lie that says you can't be vulnerable like that. You, you can't be that way. Can, can we jump again to another, another little spot? Y'all remember the story of Jacob? Jacob, do, we're going to look in Genesis 28. But before we get there, Genesis 28, Jacob is on the run because he's afraid that his brother Esau is coming to kill him. And he's running. He is scared. He's petrified because his brother is the manly man. His brother's the one that drops the deer all the time with the bow and arrow, and Jacob is off stirring his soup. I'd be scared too. Spoons don't fight well against bow and arrows. So Jacob is running scared because of, of a situation many chapters back. You remember what he did when he stole the birthright? Oh, it wasn't just that he had Esau sell it to him for the, for the uh, bowl of stew. It was that he went in and he had Isaac bless him under the pretense that he was Esau. And do you remember what his mother said to him? As she's going in, he's going in to get blessed. He walks into the room and as he's about to go, she stops him and she says, Wait a second, cover up the smooth, tender spot on your neck. Because you're about to walk into your father's place and he's going to see right through you if you've got that tender spot exposed. And she covers it up with that old rough goat hair, lays it across him that way. <clears throat> Isaac will not see through the, the mask and the disguise. And the lie of the enemy is that you've got to come in and you've got to cover up all of your tender spots. And you've got to cover up all of your vulnerable places. Because if somebody sees that, they're going to see right through you. And you've got to put on a tough face, and you've got to put on a strong face, and you've got to hide this, all this weakness and this brokenness that may be lingering there. You've got to cover it up before you go into the presence of the Father because somebody will see through it if not. And the lie that the enemy is told is ruining men of God, particularly. But in this day and age where everybody's worried about being... Uh, uh, women are just as good as men and all this. Thing. I ain't saying you ain't. I'm just saying when everybody's worried about that, we've got women who are so worried about being strong and so worried about being tough and proving they don't need a man or they don't need this or that. We've got men and women who are living behind masks every day of their life because they are so determined to cover up their tender spots and their weak spots because if they leave them exposed, somebody's going to see through them. Somebody's going to see that weakness. 
And they can't have that. And the lie of the enemy is that you as a man or a woman, you have to be strong and you have to be tough. And that if you're going to be strong and you're going to be tough, then you've got to cover up the tender spots because you can't go into the presence of your father looking vulnerable. And we try to mask everything. We try to cover it up. And this desire to cover up who he was has driven Jacob for years. It's caused him to stay on the run. He's been fleeing. He's been running from his brother. He's been running from who he really is. And it drives him out into the middle of the wilderness where we find him in Genesis chapter 28. I've got verses 10 through 17 done. I don't know if I'm going to read all of them just yet. We'll, we'll get the basic idea though and we may go piece by piece. In Genesis 28, you'll find where Jacob is in verse 10. It says this of Jacob. And Jacob went out, or he left from Beersheba, and he went toward Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place. He stopped at a certain spot, just unnamed, nothing special. And it says he tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took up the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. He starts out before he decides to run again, he is living in the place called Beersheba. And if you know anything about this place, you go back and look a little bit into it. Beersheba is the spot where his father Isaac was at, and they were digging the old wells up. And they kept having these conflicts with these other nations who would come in and steal the well after they would redig the well. And finally they got to a spot where they had redug one of the wells, the well at Beersheba, it wasn't called that at that time, but they dug that well. And finally, Isaac and this other king or this other leader made an oath or they made a pact that they would no longer strive against each other. And they named the place Beersheba, Bear meaning well, and Sheba meaning a covenant or an oath. So Jacob is living in the place of the well of the covenant. And he leaves the well of the covenant to go down toward the place called Haran. Now, have you got time for me to bore you with just another little bit of history? Is that okay? You can go back. I believe it's Genesis 12. I'll check just to make sure because I don't want to tell nobody wrong because half of you are going to look at me and cock an eyebrow when I tell you this. It's Genesis chapter 11, the end of the chapter. Did you know that Abraham was not the first man sent to the promised land? The first man sent to the promised land was his father, Terah. The word of the Lord came to Terah and called him out of the land of Ur of the Chaldees. And, and on the way out of Ur of the Chaldees, it says that, that he and his son Abraham and his son Nahor, and I believe he might have even had one other son, are on the way to the promised land. And on their journey, his son Haran, that's the other son's name. I don't know why I forget that, and that's in the scripture. Terah's father has three sons. It's Abraham and Nahor and, and Haran. And Haran dies on their journey. They're on the journey. Terah, his oldest son, he passes away. And, and as they are traveling on this journey, they come to a place with the same name as his dead son. And if you read the scripture right here in Genesis 11, it literally says that they stopped right there. Terah did not continue on the journey. He came to a place that reminded him so much of how hurt he was and how much stuff he had going on, that it stopped him on his journey to go and get the promise that God had given him. 
and he did not receive it. It actually says, that it, right, it says right here in uh, verse 32 of chapter 11, and the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. He died in the place that reminded him of all the pain and all the hurt that he had experienced. He died right there. He was sent to the promised land, and, and because he got to a dry place that reminded him of some past pain, he stopped and gave up his cause. He quit pressing on. And, and, and so this is where Jacob is now at all these years later. They've still not inherited the promised land. It's still a journey for the Israelites. And, and now Jacob has come back. He has left Beersheba, the place of this well, this place of life and of sustenance. And he has gone back to Haran and run into the same place where his great-grandfather stopped and died. And now he is at this spot, and if you actually go back and look it up, you'll find that Haran really means parched. It means dry. It means to burn or to melt. It's a hot place. It's a dry place. Nothing's growing there. It's dead. So Jacob has left this well. He has left this place of life, and as he is on his journey, he comes to a place where everything is dry and everything is dead. And in this spot, he has to meet with God. He, he comes to a place where he has got to get a hold of God. Because everything around him is dry. Everything around him is dead. Everything around him, th there's no good. There's no life here. And I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life as a Christian on this, this journey that I felt like there was a season where I was living near a well. Or, or a place of just, I was just refreshed. It was just, you, you were on fire. You were pumped up, whatever you want to call it. You were, just, you were just filled with joy about your relationship with Christ, and you felt like you were getting it right. You felt like you were moving in the right direction. You had everything together. You were living by the place of the well. And then all of a sudden, something happens, and as you're on your journey, you end up moving further and further and further and further away from this place of the well where everything is easy. And everything just comes natural. Everything just flows. There's just, there's just water there. There's just life. It's easy. And you move further and further away to this place that is parched and this place that is dry, this place that is no good, this place that, that, that is hurt. It reminds you of pain. He comes to a spot on the road. It says that he lighted on a certain place and the sun was set there. So he's on a long journey. And as he's on this journey, he gets to Haran. It's dry. It's parched. It's a desert. Not only is Haran parched and dry, it's also dark now. So he's in a dry place. He can't, he can't feel the presence of God is what we would, we would refer that to for us. He, he's not feeling anything. He, he's not sure what, what's going on. He's not being refreshed by the presence of God. And now not only is he not feeling the presence of God, but now he's in a spot where it's getting dark. And he can't see what's going on. And if you've been in one of those spots where, where you weren't really feeling God, and then on top of that, not, you weren't really just feeling Him, but on top of not feeling God, you didn't know what He was doing or where He's wanting you to go because it's dark. You, you don't really see the path of where He's taking you. The journey's kind of gotten weird because things have gotten dark, and you don't know where you're going from here. You've been walking, you've been striving, you've been working, you've been trying to do it, you've been trying to make this thing happen the way it's supposed to, and, and along the journey you've run into a dry place, and now the dry place is not just dry, but it's dark, and you don't know where you're going. And you feel like God's just kind of led you out here, and you're just kind of wandering, because it's just dark right now. I, I don't see anything, it, it's just dark. 
It kind of brings to light that passage in Job, I believe it's chapter 23, isn't it, where he says that, that God hides himself on the left hand, and I don't see what he's doing. And on the right hand, I can't behold him. Y'all ever walk through places like that? You've been through those spots where, where it gets dry. And after so long of being dry, it gets to the point where you're not seeing God move, you're not seeing his direction, you don't know where you're supposed to be going, you're not even sure if you're in the right place anymore. Things just get tiring. And the problem with it is, is now he's in this dry place, it's turned dark on him, and then on top of that it says that he lays down and he gathers the stones and uses them for a pillow. So it's a dry place, it's a dark place, and not only is this a dark and a dry place, but it's a hard place. Y'all ever been there? You, you, you know what we're talking about? You've been in those moments where, where nothing really makes sense. It's gotten dry. Now you can't see where God's taking you. And on top of not being able to see where God's taking you, things keep on getting harder and harder and harder. And you can't find rest in the place where you're at. It's just dry and it's dark and it's hard to make it work. And, and I'm doing all that I know to do. I'm still on my journey. I'm still going the way I'm supposed to. I'm not giving up. But, but it's dry and it's dark and it's hard. When we get to a place where we treat God commonly, I believe sometimes he allows us to wander off in those spots where we might not have seen him for a while. We might not have watched him work in a little while. It, it may have seemed a little dark. It may have seemed a little dreary. It may have been a little dry. It's been a hard spot. But the thing about God is his grace won't leave us. His grace doesn't give up on us. And, and I'm not saying that you've committed some terrible sin or I've committed some awful sin. What I'm saying is that the, the trick of the enemy is to get us to treat him common. And, and we start acting like he's just normal, he's just common, it's just, it's just God, it's just church, it's just kind of like Jacob here. It says he just went to a certain place. But if you track on down a little further, you'll find that it actually says that where Jacob was there, he begins to wake from a dream, he sees angels have ascended and descended on a ladder, and he stands and he declares, this is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. He treated it like a common place when he first got there. But as God began to work and God began to move on him and God began to speak to him, he realized where he was at and he realized he was at the gate of heaven. And God moved him from a dry place back to the place that he was supposed to be because he started getting out of that rut of treating God commonly, treating God like it was just a certain place. It was just a common place. No, no, no. He came to the realization, this isn't a common place. This is the house of God. Sister Michelle, can you come play something, musicians? Y'all can come on up and get ready to go. <clears throat> I understand that we've kind of bounced and we've kind of rolled, but he here's my purpose, here's my point in where we're going. We've started out, we've talked about treating God commonly and all of these things that go with it. The reason for that is because when we get to these times, like, like I said, like this morning or this evening, where, where we just feel like God just moves in, it is so easy to get to a spot where we begin to treat those times commonly. And we just take it for granted that, that it's just always going to be that way. And like we can just, we'll just go to it and we'll get it if we want it. If we don't want it, we'll just kind of sit back and do our thing. And God didn't call us to live that way. God didn't call us to be those kind of people. And now here's why we ended up where we did. Because I, I, I felt the stirring in my spirit. And I again, I'm not going to work something up or try to, try to push you into anything. 
but I, I just felt this stirring that there were some folks here tonight that you just need to be refreshed. There's just been some junk going on. It's, just, it's been dark. It's been dry. It might have been hard. And you just been, you're doing all you know to do. You're just walking on the journey. You're trying to keep moving. You're trying to keep going the right direction. But it's gotten dry. And you need for some, something to happen, for God to come and to move and, and to refresh some stuff in you. you. You just need to feel His presence again. You're not even sure how to treat it commonly because you haven't felt it in a while. And, and this is what I, would, what I would end with, what I would say to you, is, is in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2, there's a scripture that I got to looking at this stuff. It just started kind of jumping out at me. This one right here, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. The Bible says this, Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. In other words, I, I was reverent. Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In the midst of the year, revive your work, God. Revive what you want to do, God. Bring revival to what you've been doing, what you've been stirring, what you've been saying. In the midst of the year. Now, here's why that gets me. And I promise, I'm about to shut up. I'm going to get out of your way, I promise. If you come from a place like us and you think that there are four seasons and you think that every year you get winter and you get spring and you get summer and you get fall, this doesn't really mean much. But in a place like the Arab countries or the Middle Eastern countries where you got two times a year, you got the rainy season and you got the dry season, that could speak to you because if God moves in the middle of the year, he moves in the summertime or the dry time, that says something to me. He, he moves when it's dry. He moves when I've gotten weary. He moves when I'm not near that water source any, anymore. He, he moves when I'm not at Winterfest. He moves when I'm not at Ladies' Retreat. He moves when, I, when I'm not having the great services at church or when things have weird at home or when things have gotten troubled or the finances are getting tighter. He moves in the middle of my dry times. He doesn't only move. It's not just in the rainy season, but sometimes we can crowd in the middle of the year, in the middle of the dry time, and say, God, restore what you've done. Revive your work, God. Refresh your people. In the middle of the year, in the middle of my dry time, in the middle of a place that looks parched and burnt, restore. Restore. I know it's been kind of weird. It's been different. I, I, I understand all that. But I, I'm just going to ask you if there's some, I, I'm just going to go with what I feel like we need to do. If there are some folks in here you feel like you've gotten dry, you've, there's been some stuff going on that's just left you parched. It, it, it's just been a hot, dry place. It, it's gotten dark. It's gotten weary. And you're not really sure what's going on. You're not doing anything wrong. You're not living in any kind of sin. You're not, you're not messing up. It's just that things are dry. I'm going to ask you to step down to this altar and say, I, I want to lay hands on you, pray with you. I want to believe with you for God to refresh you tonight. I, I want to believe for God to bring refreshing to this house, that when people come in, if they've been weary, if they've been wounded, if they've been broken, that refreshing comes. I don't know what life I've felt that stirring for weeks now. If you're dry, doesn't mean... Like, it doesn't mean you're in sin. It doesn't mean you're doing wrong. It, it means that you've been dry. And if this has been a dry place for you, I want you to just come down to this altar. 
Just stand. You gather around. The, the worship band's going to begin to sing. They'll play it. And all of that, that you can worship where you're sitting or whatever you want to do. But if you just want a refreshing of the presence of the Lord in your life, you just, you just want something to come in and just move this dry feeling that's been there. Right now, if you're already up here, I'm just going to ask you just you lift your hands or close you out, whatever you want to do. But you just begin to cry out to the Lord. We're going to come, we'll come around and pray with you. But you begin to call out to Him, and I believe the Lord's going to revive a work in the middle of the year, in the middle of dry times. Can I get some men and women to come help me pray real quick? Some of you prayer warriors, I want you to come up here and join with me. These are your brothers and sisters too. We're going to join with them. We're going to agree with them for God to revive the work in them. For God to revive and to refresh broken things, to refresh dry places, to refresh burnt places and parched places, to bring a time of renewing to them. Right now, in the name of Jesus, hallelujah.